back, everybody, to WVU Reads. I have in the studio today Lynn Stahl. Lynn is the humanities librarian here at WVU. She holds a PhD in English from Cornell, where she wrote about cultural conceptions of gender, sexuality, and emotion, and the ways they structure film narratives using tomboy films as a case study. Next Thursday at 7 p.m., Lynn, along with several other faculty and staff members, will be talking about the book Educated, which is one reason I wanted to invite her in today to talk with us. Um, I've asked Lynn onto the show not in her capacity as a librarian or as a scholar, but rather as a reader, someone I know who has read the book and I'm confident has insightful things to say about it. And because we've had a couple weeks here that have sort of strayed pretty far from the book itself, I wanted to kind of come back to basics and just kind of get into the nitty gritty of the book a little bit and talk about it. So Lynn, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I would love to just start with your general impressions of the book and what your experience has been like reading the book. Sure. It's been one that has evolved a lot. Um, I first read the book when I was living in Portland a couple of years ago, Portland, Oregon, and it was shortly after the 2016 election. And I think I was going through a series of sort of my own personal reckonings with my upbringing um, and with the values that had been instilled in me and with the way I, I perceived myself in relationship to larger society and that experience has certainly uh, influenced my my reading of the book, and it's it's been interesting to reread it as well a couple years down the road and having embarked on a sort of mission, I guess, to, to expand the set of authors I'm reading or to make more concerted efforts to read authors who are not straight white men or, or that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, so it's been, it's been sort of a low-level touchstone in my mind, strangely enough, um, as I've read about different experiences uh, from different demographics, and, and also I've read texts that take up questions of accounting for personal experiences within larger systems in different ways. Hmm. Well, that's interesting, because that, that does... That sounds similar in certain ways to my experience reading the book. I, I, I also uh, have read it a couple times now. Well, I'm, I'm going into my third time of reading it now. <laughs> uh, but the first time I read it, I, well, I, I listened to it, and I was, like, angry the whole time. And I was struck, too, that you, were, you, were ta- you, you mentioned the election, um, and, and that suggests to me that, you know, your, your experience of the book was colored by what was going on in the world more generally, and that's something I'd, I'd really like to talk more about. Um, I, I was like angry at the father the whole the whole time I read it uh, through or, or listened to it the first time. I just couldn't stand him, and um, a lot of his qualities, I like his belligerence, his paranoia, his uh, cruelty, his misogyny, especially his egotism. You know, I mean, he just he, there's this way in which he feels entitled to act in these awful ways because he's the patriarch of this family uh, and because he's an American. Uh, and I, I sort of was, I was seeing enough of those qualities you know, on the national <laughs> stage and out in the world. Uh, and so I, I didn't have a lot of patience for the book the first time through. I reread it and I guess I'd cooled off a little bit and I was just struck by the beauty of the prose and by how thoughtful Tara Westover 
is about her experience. Uh, so I, yeah, I found that my my appreciation of the book has grown, and you know I've had a number of conversations in here with people about it, and that's also really kind of helped me appreciate some of the literary qualities of the book, and and also some of the personal qualities that Westover has. Although I agree, and I would love to hear you talk more about um, what you were saying there at, at the end about understanding her story in in a larger context. Is that what you said? Yes, or, or sort of, um, I found myself repeatedly wanting her to make connections that I am now seeing um, rather than framing it as she often does within a, a personal individual context. And yes, this is an absolutely remarkable story and it's incredibly impactful, but there were moments, and again, I think reading other texts that engage with sort of related issues in different ways has has shaped my view of this. Um, but for example, at one point she's talking about her mom's midwifing and she makes a comment about the cost of a midwife being something like $500 versus um, the cost of a hospital. And that was a moment where uh, over the summer I read uh, Heartland by Sarah Smarsh, which is about growing up um, poor in rural Kansas. And what I really admire about that book is the way that it it combines personal narrative and intensely individual experience with a look at the larger social and political frameworks that undergird it. So, so in the instance of Heartland, there might have been some commentary about um, healthcare and how, you know, certain presidents who or, or political figures who might have um, been in line value wise with um, working class or rural white people were also creating and upholding policies that disadvantage them, such as healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so that was something that was absent from educated and seems to be almost insistently absent. And there are a few moments where, where Westover, I think, gestures toward it throughout, for example, when she's talking about um, her brother, Sean, calling her the N-word. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then she goes into a little bit about what she's learned about slavery and the civil rights movement. But again, it, it stops before, it stops short of getting into contemporary parallels, right? It stops at 1963. That's not a judgment call. It's just an interesting approach that I think I, I still need more time to well, think about. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I feel like you're reading my notes here because <laughs> this is what I had also put. Um, and I, 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 I don't know if it's, I mean, you're saying it's not a judgment call. It, it does feel to me like a, a judgment or certainly a criticism I have of this book, um, which is, it's bizarre sometimes her unwillingness to put her experience and um, in, in 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 a larger social context or to try to understand the ways in which it's socially determined in various ways, particularly given the title of this book. I mean that, that it is the story of her education, and that's what education involves. You know, is understanding yourself as participating in these larger structures of various kinds. Um, and I think the comparison to Heartland, which I haven't read, uh, is instructive because I had sort of let her off the hook because I thought, okay, it's a memoir and I don't know the genre that well. And so maybe memoirs don't generally make room 
for that kind of re- reflection or, or critique, uh, that, that it's about narrating an experience and it's up to the reader to kind of extrapolate from that. But maybe that's not the case. <laughs> I mean, uh, that there is room and she's just not inclined to do that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it, it makes me think, too, about your comments related to her dad. And, and one of the my biggest sticking points with this book, I guess, was that there's so little anger expressed towards her dad and mm-hmm. towards Sean and towards mm-hmm. the, the abusive men in her life. And, and I think part of that for me is having having been making efforts to come to terms with anger and to feel like I can, Hmm. I can experience anger. And Mm. there's something about, I've never gone, you know, through anything like a lot of what Westover went through. And yet I'm, I still have anger towards some aspects of my upbringing. And so I think there's something troubling to me about her not being willing to express anger publicly about, something that is, you know, flat out wrong. Like there was a ton of abuse happening. And if she's not willing to express anger about that, it makes, it makes me feel guilty about feeling angry about much lesser things on the scale of, um, abuse. You know, my, my parents weren't abusive, but I'm certainly resentful about some of the values that I was brought up with and was myself educated to see as, um, objectively, good mm-hmm. when when they're really the product of, again, the systems that I wanted to see Westover talking about. Because I think one of the things that makes it particularly easy for white women to become complicit in racism is our sort of, our desire to be good and, and the uncomplicated way in which we, we are conditioned to accept um, the goodness that our parents hand down or that mainstream culture hands down. And so um, this is, again, where I'd been thinking about other memoirs and um, the ways that they work to locate themselves in systems. And Are You My Mother by Alison Bechtel is one where she's sort of actively negotiating her relationship to her mother, her relationship to her therapist, and her relationship to her writing all at the same time. Um, and so as someone who has been, again, realizing over the past three years, the ways in which my, um, inability to feel or express anger to make confrontations not only affect my own personal relationships, but make me, you know, afraid to get in trouble and, Mm -hmm. and the people who Mm -hmm. determine whether you're in trouble are typically the people in authority, which again, typically, um, you know, police dominant white culture. So it's, it's a personal thing that sort of builds out into larger implications. Um, and so that's, that's part of why I wanted her to express anger. And just because there are so many silence, silencing mechanisms around, um, women and, and not women and men who are, um, who are being abused Mm -hmm. that I think it's, again, it comes down to the, I don't, I don't know if responsibilities is the right word, but things one might think about if one is writing about intensely personal experiences in a public venue, what, yeah. what messages are you sending about how this type of experience is to be handled? 
let's go to the book a little bit, if if you don't mind. Yes. I want to look because you brought up Sean, and I think Sean is a nexus of, of a lot of this stuff, uh, and frankly hasn't gotten enough of our scorn on this show because he's <laughs> he's just such a despicable character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm in chapter thirty three, and maybe you know I'm going to read a little bit of it, and and maybe we can we can hear moments in which she does seem to be engaging in some some lar- or, or no not even that just sort of some angry moments um and you know is there anger kind of smoldering under the surface here so this is relatively late in the book uh, her sister audrey has recently come forward uh to the family about her own ha- having been abused herself uh by sean and Tara is back at home, and, and so this is a, a, an interaction between Sean and Tara. Uh, Sean spoke calmly, thoughtfully. His blonde hair was filthy and uncut, growing wild, and his face was covered in stubble the color of shale. His eyes shone from under the oil and dirt, blazes of blue in clouds of ash. His expression, as well as his words, seemed to belong to a much older man, a man whose hot blood had cooled, who was at peace. Sean turned to me. I had been avoiding him, but suddenly that seemed unfair. He had changed. It was cruel to pretend he hadn't. He asked if I'd like to go for a drive, and I said I would. Sean wanted ice cream, so we got milkshakes. The conversation was calm, comfortable, like it had been years before on those dusky evenings in the corral. He told me about running the crew without Dad, about Peter's frail lungs. Peter is his son. About the surgeries and the oxygen tubes he still wore at night. We were nearly home, only a mile from Buck's Peak, when Sean cranked the wheel and the car skidded on the ice. He accelerated through the spin, the tires caught, and the car leapt onto a side road. Where are we going? I asked, but the road only went one place. The church was dark, the parking lot deserted. Sean circled the lot, then parked near the main entrance. He switched off the ignition, and the headlights faded. I could barely make out the curve of his face in the dark. You talk much to Audrey? he said. Not really, I said. He seemed to relax. Then he said, Audrey is a lying piece of shit. I looked away, fixing my eyes on the church spire, visible against the light from the stars. I'd put a bullet in her head, Sean said, and I felt his body shift toward me. But I don't want to waste a good bullet on a worthless bitch. It was crucial that I not look at him. As long as I kept my eyes on the spire, I almost believed he couldn't touch me. Almost, because even while I clung to this belief, I waited to feel his hands on my neck. I knew I would feel them soon. But I didn't dare do anything that might break the spell of waiting. In that moment, part of me believed, as I had always believed, that it would be me who broke the spell, who caused it to break. When the stillness shattered and his fury rushed at me, I would know that something I had done was the catalyst, the cause. There is hope. In such a superstition, there is the illusion of control. I stayed still, without thought or motion. The ignition clicked, the engine growled to life. Warm air flooded through the vents. You feel like a movie? (laughs) 
Sean said. His voice was casual. I watched the world revolve as the car spun around and lurched back to the highway. A movie sounds just right, he said. I said nothing, unwilling to move or speak, lest I offend the strange sorcery of physics that I still believed had saved me. Sean seemed unaware of my silence. He drove the last mile to Buck's Peak, chatting cheerfully, almost playfully, about whether to watch The Man Who Knew Too Little or not. So, uh, I'm struck by a couple things in that passage. Actually, the first thing that struck me was the ice cream, you know, <laughs> and then the movie. And it's, uh, I think because I, those, it, you know, they make him seem not just like a child, but like an entitled child. You know, Sean wants ice cream. We've got to go get ice cream. Sean wants to watch a movie. We've got to go watch a movie. Um, it's not clear to me that Westover is, that, that would be very subtle, I think, a portrayal of him as that. Um, but uh, that's how he comes across to me, as, as well as being obviously um, cruel and dangerous. Um, and I think the dynamic here, although Sean is, is portrayed certainly by his parents, and I think to some extent by Westover as a victim of his own mental illness, um, he seems to really know what he's doing here. Uh, in terms of when he issues this threat, which obviously is a threat to Tara not to, you know, speak out in the way that Audrey has spoken out. Uh, so uh, he, he comes across as, as quite, you know, uh, uh, manipulative here. What do you think about that passage, Lynn? I, I agree. He seems entirely manipulative and and certainly if not directly aware of what he's doing, aware that this is a means that has been effective for him in the past and in, in order to get compliance of women and, and that it's something that he's going to keep doing. Um, and I think this is a helpful passage for me, uh, thinking back on our discussion about anger and Westover's reluctance to articulate it as such. And, and, I think, um, right, it's all, it's Sean's anger that's getting so much voice here when the stillness shattered and his fury rushed at me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can see in in that sense why she's so, maybe so reluctant to, um, to express anger because her experience of anger has been in the form of this awful abuse hmm. um, at the hands of Sean and at the hands of her father. But again, it's it's about part of that is is the silencing mechanism at work um and then again she says i waited to feel his hands on my neck and that takes me directly to an, another book um mm-hmm. i read by kate mann called down girl mm-hmm. um uh, she's kate mann is a philosopher um and and writes about um essentially the logic of misogyny and one of the things she discusses in her introduction is the ways that euphemism functions to um, not just to to silence survivors of abuse, but um, on a more structural level to to get men off the hook. And mm. and the amount of times that police use phrasing um, when they're writing up a, a domestic um, incident report use phrasing euphemistic phrasing like he placed his hands on her neck rather than he strangled her. Mm. Um, and so so there's something very important about putting words to 
the act that he would perform, right? Uh-huh. She's she's not waiting for him to put his hands on her neck. She's waiting to be strangled, mm-hmm. right? That's well within the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so this is, again, one of those points where I, I feel so ambivalent. Of course, it, it's it's hard for me in my position not having been through something like this to to issue a judgment, but also understanding on a, a systemic level, I think, how silencing works. It's a frustrating moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, you know, the, the book, the book itself is a way to shatter that stillness. I mean, it, it is to, uh, to whatever one would do to a silencing mechanism, to di- disable the silencing mechanism. Uh, for her, but it sounds like we're saying maybe not for other people that they're, you know, that it's not generalizing from her own situation in such a way that, you know, would help us to understand the way these, the way people like Sean um, operate outside of, outside of her own life. And I do think that Sean and her father and her story are kind of, you know, they're extreme, obviously, and it's not everybody that doesn't go to school or doesn't get a birth certificate. But there are some other ways in which they are very typical. And, and it is their very ex- extremeness that makes them so illustrative of what you're describing, Lynn, as, as some pretty kind of common, um, habituated, uh, structural ways of, of acting. Um, for instance, the ways in which uh, men assert power over women and silence, uh, and silence them. So, what about you? Do you have any? Do you have any parts of the book you'd like to look at? Uh, sure. Well, one actually, I hadn't necessarily thought about this in relation to this passage, but I think um, so. This is right at the end of chapter thirty-seven, and she's she's in Cambridge, um, and she's talking about uh, she's talking to a friend. She's having these sort of physiological symptoms. She's grinding her teeth. Um, She's having breakouts. And then I guess I can just read this bit. One evening, I got into an argument with a friend about something trivial. And before I knew what was happening, I had pressed myself into the wall and was hugging my knees to my chest, trying to keep my heart from leaping out of my body. My friend rushed toward me to help, and I screamed. It was an hour before I could let her touch me, before I could will myself away from the wall. So that's a panic attack, I thought the next morning. Soon after, I sent a letter to my father. I'm not proud of that letter. It's full of rage, a fractious child screaming, I hate you at a parent. It's filled with words like thug and tyrant, and it goes on for pages, a torrent of frustration and abuse. That is how I told my parents I was cutting off contact with them. Between insults and fits of temper, I said I needed a year to heal, to heal myself then perhaps I could return to their mad world to try to make sense of it. My mother begged me to find another way. My father said nothing. So, so here she finally is expressing anger. At least she's, she's relaying an account of herself as expressing anger and she's castigating herself for it. She's not proud Mm -hmm. of it. She actually frames herself as the abuser in this situation. And so I find... Uh, Where does she do that? Well, she says a torrent... She describes the letter as a torrent of frustration and abuse. Uh Uh-huh. And that's... that's, She is a writer. She is a very skilled writer. That's not a a word that I think would just sort of slip in there. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so, so this passage, I think, is, is again, troubling, especially in, in combination with the one we just yeah. looked at regarding Sean. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because this is the moment where her father is, is silenced. My father mm. said nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's such a, a rich passage in, in terms of meaning and symbolism. And, and so much of it is just like, wait, I was, I was hoping this would be a moment where you, where you find anger useful, where you're not again, fitting in this, this narrative where you're obeying um, the framework that your father has set up for you, even Mm -hmm. as you're sort of trying to cut yourself off from it. Yeah. Yeah. Something to be proud of. I mean, that was clearly an act of of courage to send that letter and to break off contact with her parents and to call her father what he is, which is a thug and a tyrant. Right, right. (laughs) Uh, Keeping in mind, obviously, that, you know, that would be hard to do no matter what your father had done. Right. Uh, That would still, I imagine, feel like a betrayal. Do you have any other passages for us, Lynn? Just towards the beginning, the very beginning, actually, in the prologue, um, she's sort of setting herself up geographically and, and she's come back um, to the mountain and just kind of setting the scene in a lot of ways. Um, so I can just read from this. I had been educated in the rhythms of the mountain, rhythms in which change was never fundamental, only cyclical. The same sun appeared each morning, swept over the valley and dropped behind the peak. The snows that fell in winter always melted in the spring. Our lives were a cycle, the cycle of the day, the cycle of the seasons. Circles of perpetual change that, when complete, meant nothing had changed at all. I believed my family was a part of this immortal pattern, that we were, in some sense, eternal. But eternity belonged only to the mountain. There's a story my father used to tell about the peak. She was a grand old thing, a cathedral of a mountain. The range had other mountains, taller, more imposing, but Buck's Peak was the most finely crafted. Its base spanned a mile, its dark form swelling out of the earth and rising into a flawless spire. From a distance, you could see the impression of a woman's body on the mountain face. Her legs formed of huge ravines, her hair a spray of pines, fanning over the northern ridge. Her stance was commanding, one leg thrust forward in a powerful movement, more stride than step. My father called her the Indian princess. She emerged each year when the snows began to melt, facing south, watching the buffalo return to the valley. Dad said the nomadic Indians had watched for her appearance as a sign of spring, a signal the mountain was thawing, winter was over, and it was time to come home. So this passage struck me as um, thought-provoking on a number of levels, and I'm really looking forward to what I think uh, Dr. Charlotte Holke is going to have to say about um, this kind of language on Thursday, because I know she's she's very much invested in sort of looking at this book through a, the framework of um, settler colonialism and indigenous peoples. And this was something that I don't think really registered with me the first time I read the book, was kind of the the family's relationship to the to the land and um, of course the the religious um, overtones were were certainly clear um, but I, I had missed out on this sort of the father's reliance on this 
uh, sort of pseudo Native American mythology, which <laughs> which Westover seems to be reproducing here mm-hmm. in this personification of of the mountain of nature and the exoticization and, mm-hmm. and naming it as an Indian princess um, and sort of yoking her narrative to that very different system. And yeah. so it is an interesting passage because it does contain both her strengths as a writer and, and also some of her blindnesses. Now you said at the end there, uh, you know, that it's in the preface. And so you kind of forget about it when you get to the end and it's only in rereading it that you, you see it again. And so I, I, I did want to talk about that a little bit since both of us have reread this book. And, and I do think for, you know, for, for speaking for myself, at least despite some of my complaints, um, I, I do think it's a it, it's a, a good book, and that's something else we can talk about. You know, what is a good book? Um, but that given that it, it, it can withstand multiple readings and that my relationship to the book has changed and is, is even ambivalent, uh, I think is ultimately a testament to the power of the book and, and a real compliment to her as a writer. Um, now, uh, now, you talked... Uh, earlier about your 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 own experience of rereading the book and you, and you described that as having changed in part because of other books that you had read and I thought that was interesting because you know I, I uh, when I when I introduced you I talked about you'd gotten your PhD at Cornell but it sounds like it was after your PhD after your formal schooling that there was this other kind of schooling going on or that you were continuing your education even though you were no longer, uh, formally, you know, enrolled in a, in, 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 in school? Uh, well, yes and no. So a- after I finished my PhD, I went to library school to get a master's in library science. So it was sort of an interesting um, combination of concurrent forms of education. I was living in Portland. I had moved there with with no job and no prospects and not really sure. I knew that I didn't want to be a professor, but I wasn't quite sure um, where to go from there. And as you can imagine, the market for English PhDs who don't want to teach is, <laughs> uh, people weren't, you know, mm-hmm. knocking down my door mm-hmm. with job offers. You, you put that in your CV. <laughs> I, I refuse to teach, but I'm a brilliant scholar. Uh, um, I do, I do teach and I enjoy a lot of things about teaching. And now I teach in mostly in different, uh, contexts and research instruction and that kind of uh-huh. thing. Um, but, but finally I figured out that academic librarians get to do all the, um, the cool things mm-hmm. and, and don't, um, have to teach at least not in, um, a traditional classroom mm-hmm. sort of semester setting. So anyway, so I, um, I was in Portland, um, and I was enrolled part-time in a, a library science program. And I was also working part-time at the public library in Portland, which is, colorful, um, <laughs> as you can imagine. And so the, the branch I was working at has a, a it's in a neighborhood with a, a big population of Spanish speaking immigrants and Vietnamese immigrants. Um, and so it, I was often the only, um, you know, at meetings, I was often the only, um, we're one of the only white person white people in the room. And, and so I was having a lot of, um, experiences that were incredibly helpful for me and also incredibly sort of 
mortifying. Um, <laughs> uh, George Yancey talks about something called um, courageous listening in, in which you're sort of um, forcing yourself to, to hear and see really unflattering, painful truths. And I think particularly in combination with, with the 2016 election, I was getting a lot of that kind of education and figuring out how, you know, what my, my blind spots were and how they had probably done, they had definitely done a lot of harm over the years in various ways. Um, and particularly after being in a, a PhD program and a, a pretty, um, a pretty traditional program that sort of prides itself on the prestige factor and all that. It was, it was a really incredible and, and incredibly real world experience to be around a, a lot of people who were at a very basic level of need. Um, for a lot of people, the public library has become the place where they go to, to not be outside. Portland has a very large, um, population of people experiencing homelessness at various points. Um, so there was a lot. I remember the the day of the 2016 election, actually, in, in Oregon, you vote by mail. So you get your ballot in the mail, and then you have a month or so to read up on whatever um, candidates or measures you want to read up on, and then you can drop your ballot at one of the designated locations. And all the public library branches have ballot boxes. So the day of the election, I was working... And, you know, watching all these families and kids coming in and dropping their parents' ballots in the box and just feeling very warm and fuzzy and, and confident <laughs> that <laughs> we were going to have the first um, female president and um, it wasn't going to be Sarah Palin. Um, and, and then throughout the evening sort of obsessively checking the news and, and thinking, oh, boy, this is really not good. And then you know, progressively like, okay, don't cry at work. Mm -hmm. Um, and it just, then the next morning having to go to work and being in a meeting with, um, a lot of people of color and immigrants and just sort of, that was the very beginning of this, of this embarrassingly belated realization of, um, of my place in a system and the ways that my, sort of quote-unquote good Midwestern upbringing had left me um, left me ignorant to a lot of the ways that um, that institutional racism for example was shaping my values and and so it's it's been a, a lot of <laughs> unpacking things since then and figuring out how I have messed up and figuring out how to, to mess up less um, and, and precisely what, what, what I find that educated doesn't always necessarily do, which is how to locate my own story within, um, those larger systems. And so it sounds like that, um, that education was kind of about a negotiation between things you were experiencing, uh, in, you know, at, at the branch library branch, and I imagine books you were reading, also that were kind of framing that experience or giving some language to that experience. I wonder if you feel like you, 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 because, you know, you, the way you describe that has so much to do with 
um, being at the library and working at the library. Um, if you feel like that that education could have happened in the classroom, or there's something that's sort of necessarily out in the world about it. That's that's a really good question. Um, I think some of both. I think it was particularly instructive for me to be part time in a, an educate an official education program doing library school and working in the public library at the same time. Um, so the American Library Association has a set of core values that include things like intellectual freedom and privacy, um, and and um, of course I'm blanking on them right <laughs> <laughs> right now. Um, but but basically they're they're rooted in the idea that people should have access to information. Um, that that access should be free and protected, and and people shouldn't be tracking your um, book checkout mm-hmm. habits or, or that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and the question of neutrality is one that comes up a lot in relation to libraries. And the sort of conventional wisdom has been that libraries are a neutral space where all viewpoints are welcome. Um, but that very quickly sort of imploded, I think, as as things like hate groups wanting to use libraries for meeting spaces. Hmm. Um, right, And that's an extreme example. I think one thing that I learned is that there there is no neutrality, right? It's not a neutral viewpoint that everyone should have access to information, that that's a particular ideology, a particular set of political beliefs. So I think... Um, what I got from that combination of experiences was having this sort of background reading through library school and, and seeing it play out in actual libraries is that um, this explosion, like we need to stop pretending that neutrality exists. We need to acknowledge what's political about our daily lives and, and how we can engage with that with greater awareness. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about the difference or non-difference between something that's good and something that's enjoyable oh, to read. Uh-huh, so maybe uh-huh. I mean, that, that sort of dovetails with our okay. discussion about Yeah, that might be a good, a, a good place to, to end. Okay. Um, what, what is a good book? Uh, or good when I when I was teaching in grad school, I um, one semester I taught a course on adolescence in film, and so a lot of the films we were watching were were pretty not necessarily lighthearted. I mean, 16 Candles certainly looks different in <laughs> retrospect. Um, it looks really bad. Mm. Um, but but things like um, 16 Candles, Rebel Without a Cause, American Graffiti that are, that are fairly, mm. they're at least in a recognizable form to students, or I shouldn't say to students, to, to general audiences. Um, and you sort of know what you're, you're getting into. And then I had them watch Elephant, which is um, a Gus Van Sant film about a mass shooting at a school that's sort of loosely based on Columbine. And it has a very different narrative structure. And it's, um, I mean, Rebel Without a Cause isn't a happy film per se, but it's it at least fits within a sort of conventional moral framework that we're generally familiar with. We understand the cues. Um, we understand why... X person person gets punished for whatever, um, mm-hmm. but elephant hmm. it's it's so senseless and refuses to give answers. And students, it was interesting that my students summarily hated the film or claimed to hate the film, but they also had the most 
that was one of the most interesting discussions in class in the semester. So then we started talking about what does it mean to like a book or a film and, and what does it mean for um, a, a book or a film to be good. And so I think that's that's also helped me frame my thinking about educated. I don't I I don't think it's accurate to say that I enjoyed reading it, but I have certainly learned a lot and it's it's pushed me um to think in a lot of uncomfortable ways so so i see a lot of value in it Mm -hmm. in that regard Mm -hmm. and it's pushed you to do that sounds like less because of what's on the surface of the text and and more sort of the subtext or or what's missing in the book is that that yeah I, i think that's accurate and i think a lot of times we do, we learn a ton from negative spaces in readings and, mm-hmm. and not just within a single book, but looking at um, the canon, you know, what haven't mm-hmm. I read in classes because mm-hmm. my professors were more or less going by the status quo of of dead white men, right? Mm-hmm. What What is lacking from my education because of these, again, these silencing mechanisms. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, hearing you talk, it's just making me think about all the different uh, roles that books play in our lives, and 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 how inadequate our language often is to describe them. If we're talking about good or bad, or interesting or not interesting, or compelling, I mean, those are qualities that books can have. Um, but we can have irrational attachments to the books that don't have anything to do with the quality of the book. Um, we can learn from books we dislike. Uh, we could, you know, um, reread books that. And, you know, and not enjoy it the first time or the second time, um, and yet gain a lot from it. Um, so I was, I was interested when you, when you first started talking about your reading that you've sort of made a concerted effort to rethink the types of book you, books you read. Um, and, and that's interesting, and I think rare, that people approach their reading in that way. Um, I, I don't think I do, but it, I, I think I, I probably should. You know, I've, I've always really valued this idea of intuition, you know, that I'm, I'm sort of led from book to book. But that intuition is, is sort of, you know, informed by various uh, blindnesses of my own and biases of my own. That's interesting. I think, I mean, there's the saying that I think I get the most intellectual mileage out of in a weird way is is that saying that there's no accounting for taste because I think precisely what we need to do is account for our tastes mm. and think about why we're drawn to certain things and no you probably can't always explain it but you can look at you know I this is a sort of embarrassing example I was taught again <laughs> midwestern upbringing obscenity is bad swearing is bad um, and and me wanting to be a, a good not in trouble little girl, just sort of my brain just sort of unconsciously extended that. And so I avoided rap music because there's a lot of swearing and obscenity. Um, right. So that's, that's an instance in which I developed this taste or anti-taste, I guess, based on a particular ideological position that wound up, um, wound up functioning in a way that I was bracketing myself off from this entire mm-hmm. um, genre or form from which I could have been learning mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, do you keep a list of books that you've read? I do. I do use um, Goodreads, and it's it's helpful. And, it, again, it's really not hard to find 
more diverse books than um, than are in the canon. I think my my sort of breaking point where I realized how ridiculous all this was was when I came across one of these internet lists that was supposedly the hundred greatest novels of all time. And there was not a single Toni Morrison novel on it. And, you know, it's, it's just completely sort of boggling. Um, Yeah. I mean, those lists are always so ridiculous and yet we can't help, but, you know, lend them all kinds of authority that's not at all deserved. And they always, of course, say more about the person who's writing the list than about the books themselves, and yet they still become sort of common knowledge. Uh, yeah. I was thinking, this is kind of un- unrelated, but, um, you know, I, I, I facilitate this book club out uh, at a prison through APBP, the Appalachian Prison Book Project, and they're big, voracious readers out there. And I think it would be cool to do like an exhibit in the library, for instance, about uh, prisoners, uh, incarcerated people and their reading habits. Uh, I I thought of it because there's a guy there who just reads like two or three books a week and he keeps a list. You know, he has a reading journal and he didn't start reading until he was incarcerated. And now, you know, it's like so important to him. And he was telling us about how he'd just been talking to his wife and they they decided that when he's released, they're going to set aside he also has a child who was like six months old when he was incarcerated um and who will be eight or nine by the time he gets out but they'll set aside a room a reading room you know and there's no tv in there there's just books and comfortable chairs he says (laughs) which is obviously like you know very heartening for me to hear and 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 really cool but uh, yeah i think you know the the it would be really an interesting way to think about what kinds of books make their way into prisons um, to see how widely a lot of those guys read um, and and also just to kind of communicate the value of books for them in terms of surviving that experience. I think that would be really cool and I, I think um, Sally Brown would be able to help you put together a really amazing display and, and I think that would be um, that's a really important thing for people to see and I know there have been various issues over the past few years with um, prisons not allowing book donations to be received and, and that kind of thing. Um, but but I, I think that's something that should absolutely happen. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll bring it up with her. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think we're at about an hour, so uh, we better sign off. Okay. But thanks so much for coming in. Thank you Lynn, for having me. And sharing your insights with us. Okay, thanks a lot. Okay, bye. Bye. This podcast is a joint production of the WVU Humanities Center and the DA, and produced by Nick Kratzis and Savan Hunter. Copyright 2019.